0: Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+.
1: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection.
2: A Living History Production.
0: I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd
3: like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history...
0: We'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields And most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to Battle Walks, Where once again we are walking the great battlefields of Europe Today we're heading back up to the Ypres Salien, a place that we love to go This is one of our favourite places We've done a few episodes on this lately Because it's just such a fascinating place to explore And someone who loves getting up there And is hopefully heading up there in real life fairly soon To join some tours up there
3: is my co-host Pete Smith. Pete, welcome back to the show. Hi, Matt. Thank you. Nice to be with you. And yes, I'm, I can't wait to get back to uh, to the Eap salient and have a, a wander around. Well, exciting
0: news for everyone, for our Australian listeners, is the government has finally done what we've been talking about for a year and a half now, Pete, on this podcast. Opened the borders, so there will be international travel. So I, I don't want to be flippant about this. I mean it genuinely. This is a, a wonderful moment. So as, as of November, people are able to travel. Uh, Overseas, And it means that we're back on with touring. It means next year in 2022, we will have a full season of touring, beginning with Anzac Day and going all through the European summer. We will have a full season of touring. We are back. Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours is back. So all of our Explorer tours that depart weekly from Paris, escorted by Pete Smith. Our Anzac Day tours, I'm doing a signature tour later in the year. In September, I'll be doing a signature tour, uh, which Pete will be on as well. So you'll get to travel with the whole Pete and Matt show where we travel to some fairly exclusive sites on the Western Front. That's the only tour I'm going to be escorting personally next year. That's in September and a whole range of other tours to battlefields all over the world. So go and check our website at battlefields.com.au if you're an Australian and come and join us on the battlefields. We've been waiting for a long time. We can't wait to get back over there. Pete, one of the sites we'll explore when we're on the battlefields is this one. It's a really important site, easy to overlook. It's near Tynecott Cemetery. And we've done a podcast about Tynecott Cemetery before, so go and check that out. But this is near to Tynecott Cemetery, one of the most popular sites on the Western Front. But people often don't uh, even realise the fighting that took place to actually capture the area
3: that is now the cemetery. And that's what we're going to cover today, isn't it? It is indeed. It is indeed its I normally chat about it whilst in the cemetery, in Tynecott Cemetery, which is a good place because you get in the view that the Germans had. And we're going to actually do it the different way. We're going to start uh, actually where the Australians started. So we're going to start uh, down to a place called Docky Farm. Um, I'm going to walk right the way through and finish at Tynecott Cemetery because that is the final objective. Uh, It's where the the final lines uh, and the final bunkers were captured within the cemetery itself. So it's going to be a really good walk. When I first went to the Western Front in 2002, I think it was,
0: uh, our good friend Tom Morgan, a, a wonderful guide who lives in the UK, gave me advice about where I should go and what I should visit. And when we were talking about Tynecott, he said, don't forget that Tynecott is an Australian battlefield in its own right. It's not just a magnificent cemetery, the largest Commonwealth cemetery in the world. He said it's an Australian battlefield in its own right. And that's a really good point. It's something easy to overlook that the area where you are walking around that is now covered in graves was an Australian battlefield. This was where so many men died, even capturing the ground. Just just fascinating, Pete, that these little corners of the Western Front have multiple layers of history associated with them
3: well, well I, I think it's extra fascinating when you're in the cemetery because of course all you're thinking about is the cemetery but i've actually proven it to people i've bent down and from in front of one of the graves i've picked up a shrapnel ball uh, that's in the landscape and it's, it's just there so it's a cemetery but it's also a battlefield and and much much obviously or very obviously a battlefield because it has bunkers within the cemetery but more of that uh when, when we get back up to the cemetery from Docky farm well, this battle we're talking about is the Battle of Broodseend Ridge, um, which was a huge action
0: that took place in 1917, in October 1917. Why don't you give us one of your excellent Pete Smith potted histories? Because it's a big battle. There were a lot of people involved. We can't walk anywhere near the entire battlefield. It would, even if you decided to walk the entire battlefield, it would take you several days to do it because it's such a huge area we're going to walk one very specific part of the battlefield. So tell us about the battle in general
3: and then about the specific part we're going to walk. Okay, so I'll do the date first of all, always important. 4th of October uh, in 1917. It's part of uh, what we we generally call, or what we should be calling, Third Eap. But we have a, a horrible habit of calling it the Battle of Passchendaele, which I'm going to try and explain as we, as we travel, uh, why I don't like us calling it the Battle of Passchendaele. Because uh, the Battle of Broodsind, which took place on the 4th of October, the battle we're looking at, is part of Third Ypres, and it comes before the Battle of Passchendaele, which is the final phase of Third Epe. So this battle is on a 13-kilometre front. So as Matt just said, that means there's going to be a heck of a lot of, of troops involved on a 13-kilometre front. It's going to be 12 divisions. And you have to remember a division, uh, well, if you, you may not know, so you wouldn't remember, but it's uh, about 20,000 men. Of course, that's at full strength, and the divisions at this time are not full strength, and we're only talking about the infantry, so it's it's far less than that. But just to give you an idea of the, of the men that are going to be involved, the numbers involved... Fighting side-by-side, we have First and Second Anzac. Now, this is very unusual to have uh, both of the Anzac uh, uh, um, groups, groupings, First and Second Anzac, side-by-side, and... uh, Second ANZAC includes the New Zealanders, the New Zealand Division. So very unusual for us all to be together. And, and certainly it, it it lifted, lifted the, and it needed lifting because the weather conditions are not good, but it lifted the, the spirits of the men knowing that all their mates were beside them and this was a true uh, ANZAC attack uh, going to take place. The objectives, the final objectives, are about uh, one and a half kilometres away, so 1,500 metres uh, deep, so it's a long, long way, um, and certainly you get that view from either when you're standing at Docky Farm, which is where we are, um, and looking towards Tynecott Cemetery, so that's where we're going to be more about that in a little while, and um, it's going to be very successful. So let's just talk about this straight away. This is going to be, I've seen it described as almost a flawless attack. Now there are a few flaws and a few hiccups, but what, what they really mean when they're saying that, that is is the planning of it was very, very, very well organised. It's very well planned. Uh, the creeping barrages, overwhelming firepower. It's part of what is now known as bite and hold. And it was known then as bite and hold operations. These new operations that don't have massive objectives, just have minimal ob- objectives but you you go and capture the german lines and you hang on to it you don't take it and then fall back having killed a lot of germans these are limited advances using overwhelming uh, firepower and that's how they're very often described and that's what this is going to be and it's slowly us working our way up these ridges that surround deep everybody knows about the the flanders kind of plains and the flat area the salience which surrounds the town well, there's this ridge, and this battle, Third Epe, is all about clearing the ridge, and tr- we're trying to break through as we always are. But it's important that we clear the ridge and at least give Epe a breather from being almost constantly shelled.
0: Pete, many years ago, I did a uh, I did a little bit of mathematics just out of interest. I sat down and, using the Commonwealth War Graves Records, I noted important days in Australian military history from the First World War. And I just did some rough maths to see how many Australians died on those days. Now, it's not a perfect science because, of course, people would have died on certain days because they were wounded earlier on. Sometimes they lingered for weeks or months. So so it's not a perfect science. But I wanted to just get an impression of the cost of some of these big battles and, and these big days in Australian history. So, as I said, not a perfect science, but still an interesting exercise. And, and the, the one thing that was revealed to me is that I, I, a number of key dates, for example, the 25th of April, 1915, was obviously a costly day, the, the day of the landing of Gallipoli. Um, both days of the Battle of Fromelles were very costly. So, the 19th and 20th of July, 1916, the opening day of Pozieres, very costly. Some of the days during the 100 days advance in 1918 were very costly. But the one day where more Australians died than any other day of the war was this day, the 4th of October, 1917. I think from memory, it was about 1,200 and something Australians actually died on the 4th of October, 1917. And, And many more would have died in the days and weeks that followed from their wounds. But I just thought, make of that what you will as an exercise, but I just thought it was fascinating. It shows the scale of the operation and also the costliness of these battles. And it shows that even the victories were very expensive during the First World War, that more Australians died on the 4th of October, 1917, than any other single day of the entire war.
3: Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it, when you do those those little things? Because sometimes you get surprises, and the casualties aren't what you expected. And other times th- that they are. And very often, what it's connected to, as we've just discussing, this is seen as a, a very successful action. And immediately, when you think of success, you think, oh, well, you know, minimal casualties. Well, no, success sometimes <laughs> means terrible casualties, but it means a success. And this was a this was a really great success in absolutely appalling conditions. Because we have to remember, this is that cusp of the change. This is what. People people remember, really, when you think of the Great War and you're thinking of the, the mud and the shell holes and the rain and, and and just the horror of it. Well, this is it. And straight away, I should say, this is why we lose so many men. Literally, we lose the bodies of so many men in this landscape during this fighting. So many become missing because it's impossible to bury people properly. It's just impossible. You just roll them into a shell hole, take off their identity discs or one of their identity discs, stick a rifle and a helmet on top and then throw a bit of soil over over them and hope that somebody at some stage is going to come back and uh, and find them because it was just impossible to move the dead anywhere from this landscape so so fairly a horrific landscape and yet you have to say from reading the accounts certainly the feeling of the men who were about to attack their tails were up they knew that this was this had the potential to be um, a, a success because the artillery barrages are, are correct, but there's going to be a slight issue when we'll discuss that as we start to walk, and that is uh, that the Germans are going to counterattack. They are counterattacking at exactly the same time on the same day uh, that the, the Australians are going to launch their attack. So they're going to meet in No Man's Land. But we'll discuss that as we set off and start walking uh, the battlefield. We should remember as well that just the perspective of the Germans about what the effect this had on them,
0: because we, we tend to get very one sided in our assessments of, of battles during the war, and we forget that there was an enemy involved as well. And we talk about the eighth of August, nineteen eighteen, as the Black Day of the German Army, the Schwarzer Tag. That was what uh, it was christened. The day that the Germans lost the war in nineteen eighteen. But Ludendorff, the uh, American, uh, the American, <laughs> I'm sorry, the German commander, also referred to this as a Black Day. This was the original Black Day for the Germans. Uh, and the commander of the 5th Foot Guard Regiment called uh, 4th of October the hardest day yet experienced by the regiment in this war. So a tough day for the Germans, Pete, that again reflects the success of the battle. We're not going to walk the whole battlefield. We're just going to walk a very narrow band of it, which was covered mostly by the, mostly by the 40th Battalion uh, as they headed up towards Tynecott. Um, but it's a good example of what men were experiencing all across the battlefield. And that's the thing to remember as you walk. We're walking in a fairly narrow, narrow column towards Tynecott Cemetery. But imagine as you do this walk, looking left and right and seeing just lines of men as far as the eye could see, all of them
3: experiencing the same thing but at different parts of the battlefield. Yeah, exactly. So this is actually the, the attack of the 3rd Division. So we're well within the 3rd Division uh, boundaries. Um, and we're going to really be talking about as we walk the 40th Battalion, the only All Tasmanian Battalion, so that's the one that we're going to be going to be looking at because they were the battalion that actually took uh, our ob- our objective on the walk and also their objective, the the uh, Tancott Cemetery. So that's uh, that. It's their route, uh, roughly their route that we're going to be following as we move forward. Well, let's
0: begin the walk. We've left uh, Eap. We've driven to the little village of Zonnebeke, and we've driven on a little bit further out into the killing fields of Broodseen and Passchendaele. And we're going to head to, as you said, to Docky Farm Cemetery. A good place to start. An area actually captured by the New Zealanders a little bit earlier on. Um, and effectively the the road there formed the start line for the 40th Battalion in their
3: advance. So tell us a little bit about Docky Farm and the, the start point for the attack. Okay, so Docky Farm, the cemetery, is, is behind us. We won't discuss the actual cemetery because we're not really going to go in it. It just makes a handy place to park your car, so you can park a car there and, and leave it there if, uh, if you wish. And so we're looking in the direction of attack, up towards the ridge, and very clearly we can see Tynecott Cemetery. Then if we look a little bit further left, you can see the the Church of uh, Passchendaele. The final objective of Third Epe, that is also visible from here. Uh, and also a water tower that's, uh, that's close to it. If we look even slightly further left, we can see the New Zealand Memorial to the Missing. It's up on something called the Gravenstaffel Ridge, and that's uh, also on our left-hand side, so we can see that as well. Um, what we can't see are the concrete blockhouses that would have scattered all all across our attack line. There were concrete blockhouses everywhere. Now, an awful lot of them are still there, and we'll, we'll just talk about this now as we're walking, we won't, we'll see perhaps a few, and certainly the better ones we'll see are actually within the confines of the cemetery. So where are the others if they're still there? Well, a lot have been destroyed. They were deliberately destroyed after the war. But others are within... The farms. So when we look at the farm buildings and we look at these little farms as we're walking, then very often the blockhouses have been incorporated into the rebuilding of the farms, so we can't see them. But this is not like the Somme, where there are very few blockhouses. This is the Germans fighting from beside. So it's another thing just to talk about. We often think that these um, these blockhouses, the slit in the front, the machine guns firing. Well, yes, these actually do have slits in the front, most of them. But very, very limited fire. Yeah. Um, in other words, they couldn't traverse very easily. And it's normally long-range fire. So the blockhouses up uh, in Tynecott Cemetery, they have apertures for firing for the maximum guns can fire out of them. But it's long-range firing. It's not close work. So as soon as your enemy gets close out you come and you fight outside of the blockhouse. So when we talk about taking and fighting around blockhouses, the machine gunners, the German machine gunners, would be outside of the blockhouses firing their weapons. And when things came too hot for them, then they potentially would go back into the blockhouses again and shelter. But the fighting will take place outside of the blockhouses. We should remember with these blockhouses, too,
0: that uh, they had a very intricate network of trench systems around them because you'd always think, well, if a blockhouse is standing out in the middle of a battlefield, as they are today, completely isolated, how did you get to and from them without being killed? And the answer, of course, is that there was a very uh, intricate system of trenches that also connected them. So the, the machine gunners would fight from either, the, either on top of the blockhouse itself, and often we see uh, steps leading up to the tops of the blockhouses so that they could get up there with little ammunition niches and all sorts of things they would need to fight, or they would fight from the trenches on either side. So just an incredibly strong defensive system, and that's the nature of the fighting here. Absolutely horrific fighting. We've talked about it many times, the idea that machine gunners would defend and wipe out half of your platoon and then try and put their hands up as you overwhelmed them. And obviously the Australians usually didn't issue much quarter to machine gunners fighting around blockhouses. It was seen as a particularly ghastly type of fighting. In this area, Pete. The other thing, when we stand on this road and look up with the with Docky Farm Cemetery to our backs, and we look up towards Tynecott is talk to us about the word ridge. You've said the word ridge quite a lot. <laughs> this is a ridge. I it mean, is. I've been to I've been to New Guinea. I've been to Guadalcanal. I've been to Switzerland. You know, are we talking a you know a,
3: a sheer cliff in front of us? No, uh, and it's one, it's one of those things that I'm always having to explain to people that ridges are in the eye of the beholder. You would have to say because occasionally, <laughs> at least this one, we can see we. Can can see that this is a ridge. It's a, a gentle slope, but it is nothing that would cause you any kind of stress. You won't need ropes and, uh, and ladders to get up here. This is just a gentle walk up a, up a slope. And so it's uh, yeah, it's very deceptive when we talk about ridges. And certainly the Gravenstaffel Ridge starts off so low that at one point of it, I'm, you know, I remember I had to get on my hands and knees to realise that there's any kind of lift at all. But when you're on them, looking back down to where you've come from, you realise that the, the view is is ridiculous ridiculous from what is a very minimal ridge and certainly you can see all the way to weep uh, from uh, Tancot Cemetery the, ob- the objective that we're walking to so yeah it's yeah, they're not what you expect these are just minor ridges. Ridge in this context means slightly flatter ground than all the other ground around
0: you it's a very flat area and so but that's the point again these are the fascinating little stories that we discover is that a minor little rise of 10 meters gives you huge opportunities to to view what your enemy's doing because the ground is just so flat i've walked this a lot of times and i don't think it's a walk where you would even feel like you're going uphill as you walk it when you start you can see that the end point is uphill and when you get to the end you can see that you're
3: now in higher ground but it doesn't actually feel like you're walking uphill not at as, all. You, as, no, you, as you advance up the bridge. No, it's only when you look behind you. And that's the, that's the interesting thing. Look behind you, get the view the Germans uh, had, and you, you certainly you realise then that uh, to, height is so important in the First World War. So I'm just, I, I always love imagining the scene here. It's a really good spot to picture. the. We, we
0: think of Australians lying out on white start lines and advancing across no man's land. This, to me, was always a really good spot to picture that because you can see Tynecott up ahead. You can see the gently rising ground. And I always just imagine standing alongside the ghosts of the Australians here on each side with a cigarette casually in their mouth. And as they stand up and begin walking forward into the into the uh, the roar of the barrage in in the early hours of the 4th of October, it's a pretty it's one of those interesting spots, Pete, where to me you can connect fairly strongly with that imagery of what was going on around you it's not always easy to but but this strikes me as an area where you can
3: well it's not changed again it's one of those those battlefields where the only thing that's been rebuilt are the farms that had been turned into blockhouses. so the farms had actually gone by the time the fighting took place here so it's a very open landscape nothing here at all just the, the, that shell hole craters half full of water just that nightmare imagery that we have of the great war but what what's fascinating is it's not really changed. The shell holes and the craters aren't there any longer, but there are a lot of ditches and, and drains. In fact, some of the shell holes are there. You can still see the occasional one or two because they use them for duck ponds, so that some of them are still there. But it's not really changed, so there's nothing to in, in, impede our view. We're getting the view that the, the men would have had. I think I'll just try and explain a little bit of what had gone on even before the Germans, uh, uh, before we start advancing towards the Germans, is the Germans... We're also, going, as I said earlier, we're going to uh, counterattack. They were due to uh, to try and force us back that morning, and so their barrage had started at five twenty-seven, uh, so half an hour before we're due to attack. We attacked at six o'clock, and so the the, the men in those uh, the trenches and shell holes, and it is predominantly shell holes because the trenches have been so badly damaged by by shell fire and the conditions that the men lining out in the shell holes were subject to half an hour uh, at the very least of heavy uh, fire and there is uh, a figure that I found really horrific that one in seven had become casualties before they even attacked so uh, for the attack one in seven men had already been either wounded or killed before they stood up to attack and then they have to face the Germans in no man's land coming towards them because the Germans are attacking at exactly the same time so it was a rather wobbly start to what will become a very successful attack but you can see how the casualties start to mount immediately, even before the the actual battle per se, the battle, the actual physical moving forward uh, takes place. So what we're going to do? Let's get started. So we're going to cross the road. We've got our the cemetery behind us. Uh, docky Farm. We, we are only guessing that that's how we say it. It could be Docy. <laughs> Not sure. I've always said "Doki" and Matt and myself had a quick discussion on how we're going to say it. So just to warn you, we could possibly be wrong. So the cemetery-
0: I've said I've said "Doshi Farm" for a lot of the time as well. Yeah. It's D O C H Y. So I mean, it's one of those open to interpretation. It
3: is indeed. That's what, that's what I always say. Um, and so we're going to cross the road, uh, turn right a little bit, walk past the farm because the farm is is has been rebuilt and it's there, and then turn left and head uh, in the, uh, the again in the uh, the direction of advance. So we're going. To going up here, we go again. We're going to be going up a street. A, a little. It's not a street really. It's a. It's a, a little track almost. Very small road. Malastrat. Is that good? Is that good? I think, uh, I think you've done
0: well, Pete. Respect. <laughs> Thank you for taking that on rather than, rather than letting, letting me, in and me to do it. No, I think you've done well. Um, so
3: anyway, that's, the, that's the, the road you're looking for. We're going to be walking up that, um, and that, uh, uh, that will take us almost directly to Tancot Cemetery. So we don't need to deviate off it. It winds a little bit, but we're going to be uh, walking up, uh, up that street.
0: I think, Pete, it's interesting as we go past these farmhouses, you mentioned how when they were rebuilt, the pillboxes were incorporated in them. It's really come full circle, hasn't it? Because the pillboxes were originally built in the ruins of the farmhouses. So there were originally farms there before the war. As the war went on, the farms got progressively more ruined. When the Germans were looking for strong points, the farms were a sensible place to build them because they had strong networks of cellars. There were ruins of buildings. It was a sensible place to fortify. And then eventually the farm completely disappeared and all that was left was the pillbox. And then after the war, of course, they were, the farmers came back, rebuilt their farms in exactly the same spots, and rebuilt over the top of the pillboxes. So there's a there's a real um, there's a real evolution of the sites. And on all the trench maps and everything, you see all the all the farms marked very clearly, and the name then became applied to the pillboxes around there as well. Um, but then today, the farms are all back, so we can we can spot landmarks on this otherwise featureless battlefield um, by the location of these farms. So it's going these are going to be key points as we walk along, where we'll note, uh, where we'll note what went on.
2: In four weeks, the typical noon user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
1: That's borough.com slash ACAST. Borough.com slash
0: ACAST. And the, and the main road that goes past Docky Farm. Um, this was the area where a bloke called Wally Peeler. I mean, what a great Australian name, Wally Peeler did some pretty heroic stuff. Talk to us a little bit
3: about Wally Peeler and what he did during this battle. Well, Wally Peeler's a fascinating character because he was actually a pioneer. He wasn't even part of the 37th uh, Battalion. 37th Battalion is the one that's one of the lead battalions. I just should just say here, four battalions in a brigade, and here we would normally expect one of those battalions to be held in reserve. All four battalions in this brigade, the 10th Brigade, they will be uh, used uh, during this attack, which shows you that there was i suppose they knew that to to be successful they needed to to use everybody and that's one of the the big changes was using an awful lot of men to attack um and overrun the germans and force them back uh and then a lot of men in the frontline trenches that they'd captured so the germans couldn't easily counterattack that's part of these new uh, i suppose changes to uh, uh to our attacks so uh yes wally uh, he's a Lewis gunner. He had been brought in from a pioneer battalion just to give them some extra firepower um, uh, in, in case uh, they were attacked by planes. And he finds himself in the front line. And he's one of those guys that just feels that he's got to help. And as they were uh, driven to the ground by the fire from uh, various blockhouses and uh, the blockhouses here have a, a, a Jewish connection, there's no reason, it's just that they're using a name Israel and Judah are two of the blockhouses in this area and he effectively jumps up and attacks them single-handedly because he knows the men have been stopped and he's carrying a Lewis gun, he's firing it from, firing it from the hip and he feels that it's uh, that it's, it, it's his job because he's got the, the weapon even though he's supposed to be doing anti-aircraft duties and off he, off he goes and, and quite often uh, with the shout follow me um, so just fantastic I mean, I'm sure you'd like to expand on that a little bit Matt because there's some great accounts of his attacks uh, uh, yeah. yeah he's a great character and I'm, I'm actually reading from um, from my book Walking with the Anzacs here
0: and he was someone I, f- I featured prominently because it's just such a good story um, but uh, just a couple of things that he did So there was a, The Australians Originally when he came up When they sent him up with his Lewis gun The other thing I noticed It would have, ha- it would have been equipped for anti-aircraft fire So it would have had the big sight on it and everything Not, not particularly practical If you're then going to use it at ground level um, But he came up And there was a bunch of Germans in a shell hole Sniping at the Australians Just riflemen And keeping them down And they couldn't advance So Wally just ran And jumped into the shell hole And just took on all the Germans And he ended up killing all of them Nine of them In the one shell hole Uh, And then he came out, and on two other occasions, as I put in the book, he led near-suicidal assaults on German positions. Um, At one point, he was instructed to take his gun forward to suppress a German machine gun that was holding up the advance. Not content with simply suppressing the gun, Peeler rushed rushed the position, killed the gunner, sent the rest of the crew scurrying into a dugout. He lobbed a grenade into the dugout, then opened fire as the Germans ran out and killed another ten. Uh, and then single-handedly during the morning he killed 30 germans and captured a whole heap of machine guns just an extraordinary action unsurprisingly awarded the victoria cross just a just just a, a one man offensive as you say these guys you read about these victoria cross winners and just, you know, the, the, they, they just couldn't help themselves but uh, but to take on the Germans single-handedly. Most of this took place in and around the area. We are now heading the, up, up the Mahlerstraat towards Tynecott Cemetery. This is where Wally Peeler was everywhere doing everything. So just a great story. And reading about him after the war as well, he, uh, fascinating story. He in, he served uh, in training, unit, he survived the war, served in training units between the wars and then re-enlisted in the Second World War um, amazing considering how old he would have been by then and served in java where he was captured by the japanese and spent three years in captivity uh, as a a captive of the japanese um and then when he came home survived that as well came home um but heard that uh, one of his sons had been killed fighting in the pacific and another was one of his sons died uh, accidentally uh, soon after the war ended so he lost two sons during the second world war so again the the long tendrils of history just reach through that the, their heroic dad, the two young boys obviously obviously would have gone off in the in the footsteps of their dad and what he'd done in the first world war, and sadly both of them were killed so just um we, we i don 't think we can even begin to comprehend the grief that families endured at this time peak between the two world wars
3: no it 's something I always think about the number of of men that uh, that had children either just before the first World war or just after the first world war who become the cannon fodder of the second world war it 's something that i 've always uh, felt a connection to because my father was born in 1920 as a direct result of my grandfather coming home from the First World War. Uh, luckily, my father didn't fight in the Second World War because he reserved occupation. He was an engineer. Um, but so many of, of these chaps that came back thinking they just fought the war to end all wars, felt that security in the first few years and uh, went on to have children who would then have to do it all again. So, yeah. so terrible, really, in, in many, many ways. We should remember their names. So, Donald was, uh, was his son killed in Solomon
0: Islands in 1944. And then uh, Alfred died in 1945. Soon after the end of the war, he was accidentally killed. Uh, so, just, um, yeah, terrible. But a good spot to remember Wally Peeler. So, we're going to head on up the road, Pete. And, and what are we going to come to next?
3: Um well we're going to just well, again straight in front of us we can see the Tancott cemetery it's very white it uh, it stands out um the ground is going to get considerably worse as we approach the cemetery because there's a little beck here now i have to admit i've forgotten the name of the beck and i don't suppose you've got it anywhere It doesn't matter it's it's irrelevant. but there's a there's a small beck a, a beck is a, a stream basically but there's a there's a stream crossing the uh, the battlefield in front of us and the shell fire remember this landscape is destroyed so anything that's fairly much sea level in most areas so anything that helped drain the water has been smashed up and so now we've got a quagmire and so the battalions here start to slow down and the two attacking battalions the 37th and the 43rd uh, battalions um, are going to consolidate and then they're going to be leapfrogged and this is where the 40th battalion is going to leapfrog them um, and uh, and carry on that uh, that push up towards the uh, the cemetery itself, Tynkot Cemetery. So as we advance
0: up and we see all of these little farmhouses and fortified positions that the Germans were using, each of them tells a story. If you, It's easy just to... Anytime you come past a farmhouse here, it's easy to overlook it. But bear in mind that they were all the scenes of pretty heavy fighting and that the system was fairly similar to capture each of them. And so the, the ones we Pass is Israel House, Judah House. There's another one up ahead called Springfield. And just so just just bear in just bear in mind what these mean to the men who are fighting here. So dozens of casualties, men killed and wounded all around them, and then eventually just some some of the bravest or, or foolhardy men, you would even say, would sneak behind them or using grenades or men with rifle grenades would keep the keep them suppressed. Hopefully you'd have a couple of Lewis gunners nearby, the light machine gun that could be used to keep the heads of the Germans down. And then men would basically just either rush them head on and just somehow miraculously get through the fire or more commonly they would sneak around behind it. So just by jumping from shell hole to shell hole and edging around, they'd eventually get behind it, throw a few grenades in there and then just charge. And, and as we said earlier on, it wasn't a great result for the Germans who, uh, who, who were fighting there by the time the Australians arrived. So normally you don't hear about a number of prisoners being captured from these positions. The, the Australians just reported how many Germans they killed by the time they, they mopped up each one. But just, Pete, just a, a ghastly way to fight. I mean, you're a military man. Just, uh, how does that, the thought of just moving from strong point to strong point to strong point, how does that, uh, how does that sit with you?
3: Well, uh, um, it's very, very difficult, and uh, the men will not want to keep on moving. And so I've read several times that this whole action was helped by individuals, sometimes named, sometimes not, who would leap up, move forward, normally firing uh, either a, a gun from a machine gun, a light machine gun, the Lewis gun from the hip, or throwing grenades ahead of them as they move forward and take the next uh, strong point whether it be a concrete blockhouse or just a, a, a strong point within the mud uh, and then the men would stand up again and start moving forward again until it happened again they'd go to ground and it would then be for either somebody else or in some cases the same man if he'd managed to survive the first action and of course that's the sad thing a lot, a lot of them didn't survive the action of, do, of doing this very brave act but it's those individual acts of bravery which will keep the men moving forward and it's, a, it's about speed and you have to remember that this is in a half light so this attack has started at six o'clock. And they will have taken everything, so just to give you an idea, they will have taken everything that they needed to by 9 o'clock. So it's only three hours, and that would be, mean that the majority of this fighting will be done in half light. So that's another thing to think about. This isn't where it's clear, you can see exactly what you're doing. It's been drizzling, the rain has just stopped, the, the mud is everywhere. So everything will be mud-coloured, effectively. The men are mud-coloured, the enemy's mud-coloured, it's, it's half light. So very difficult to see what you, what uh, what's going on. And it's just a case of keeping moving and kill the enemy. Now, that's the big problem. What on earth do you do with prisoners in a situation like that? So it's, it's not anybody being horrific and thinking, I'm just going to kill every German that I see. It's about survival, that you cannot leave anybody alive as you're moving forward because you might lose them behind you. And you have to make sure that, you're, that you are clearing the landscape as you move forward. You don't want any enemy behind you.
0: One of the men, um, as you mentioned, leading these attacks was uh, Captain Frederick Mool, um, who uh, who charged forward the, the one of the final blockhouses were coming for one called Springfield. It was exactly that situation, that they'd gone forward time and time again. They got to this last one. He said, OK, come on, lads, one last rush. And he left the shell hole he was in and was hit by fire from the gun and killed instantly. So the sergeant then took over and completed the capture. But you can imagine how... Imagine you were a private who had advanced against a machine gun. You'd seen maybe your best mate had been killed or wounded next to you. Blokes fell all around you. And eventually you'd participated in the advance, however bravely. Maybe you'd done a lot. Maybe you'd only done a little. But you'd been part of the group that eventually captured that pillbox. And now you find yourself in a shell hole
3: with another one in front of you. How do you... You get the courage to get up and do it all again and again and again. And we don't talk about it much because it's so horrific, but but the damage a machine gun can do to a human body, uh, you know, to actually w- see that, to see somebody almost cut in half by a, mach- by a machine gun and then think, God, if I stand up, that's going to happen to me, and yet have to do it, then... Having not been in combat, but yet been trained to do it, I still don't know how on earth you do it, how on earth you stand up in the open moving forward, knowing what can actually happen to you. And I suppose it's, you're doing it because you're, you're helping your chums, you're helping your your cobbers. This is what you've got to do, because uh, hopefully one of them will help you uh, and you will help them if you, if you kill Germans. So that's why it's important, kill Germans, because if you don't, then you're not going to survive it. Shows the value of sergeants,
0: doesn't it? I think it was pretty much the sergeants who were kicking their men out out of the holes and and encouraging them to come on. And we're going to talk about a very notable sergeant um, shortly. Just to describe a little bit further, as we come up now, we're we're effectively in the field facing Tynecott Cemetery. And this was some of the toughest fighting of the entire day because, as we mentioned in our podcast about Tynecott Cemetery, there's several very large pillboxes there. This is a great perspective. As you cross this field, it's a great perspective to look up and see those pillboxes on the skyline, just imagine Germans scurrying between them and a, and a hail of fire coming down the slope. And I've got a quote here that describes fairly, in fairly exquisite detail what it was like to face those pillboxes up on that ridge. On the top of the ridge, the trench system and line of pillboxes along it seemed alive with men and machine guns, and heavy fire was also coming from Bellevue Spur on the front of the New Zealanders. So that's to the left of the Australians. So They're also getting enfilade fire from the left. The only possible way to advance was from shell hole to shell hole by short rushes. To add to our difficulties, there was a thick belt of wire immediately in front of us, which had very few gaps in it. On these gaps, the enemy had trained machine guns and we dribbled through in ones and twos, but dead and wounded remained in each gap. Casualties were very heavy. So again, Peter, it's something we didn't mention, but between the pillboxes, the Germans had strung barbed wire and deliberately left gaps in the barbed wire that they'd then trained their machine guns on. Just horrendous, horrendous fighting.
3: Yeah, it's a it's a very uh, clever uh, ploy we all we all did that and uh, quite often i think one of the the more horrific things certainly from the som fighting was that we'd very often go out in patrols and cut gaps through the wire so that the enemy wire so that when the attack came there would hopefully be some gaps there and very often the germans would tape them with white tape to show us exactly where they were and what that meant was if they knew where the gaps were they'd got a gun covering the gap so it was it was a, kind of a come on right okay go for these gaps we know where they are so yeah War of nerves taking place as well. Here, there's not, there's, there's not that luxury. It's, uh, it's such a quagmire. And so you can imagine these guys preparing for that final rush. They're in the boggiest pass, because this is where they... Oh, I looked up the stream. It's called the um, Newey Beak that almost okay. certainly is not how you pronounce it uh, a beak is like a beck it <laughs> a, 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 small, a smaller stream so that's what they've been in that in that low ground where the stream is um they've now facing a bit of raggedy barbed wire as well they've got these concrete block that they can see and in some cases they can't see and they've got to do that that final rush And as Matt said, one of the people we're going to look at is a chap called Sergeant Lewis McGee. Now, we have mentioned him before because, sadly, he will lose his life later on in the fighting and he's buried in Tynecott Cemetery. So on one of our previous podcasts, podcasts on the cemetery, we talked about him. But what's interesting is the blockhouse he took called Hamburg... Uh, is on the, our left-hand side, um, if we're looking straight at the cemetery, and it's still there within the farm complex. And I've several times tried to go and have a look at it, because I know it's there, but he's got the grumpiest farmer in the world, actually owns the farm there, and he shoes you out, and he looks somewhat mad, so I'm always slightly concerned. I don't want to argue with him. Uh, but I'd love to go and have a look at, uh, at the blockhouse that uh, that McGee is going to actually uh, take.
0: I'm the same, Peter. I've never managed to get in there. That'll be our challenge when we when we out <laughs> on the battlefields to go yeah. and convince the farmer with a bottle of brandy or something to let us in, but I'm the same. So we talked about Lewis McGee uh, in our podcast about Tynecott Cemetery, but this is great because we've now got a perspective of the attack. So he was in this field. He charged to the left and captured the pillbox in Hamburg Farm, saved the day, and then and went on, and he was sadly killed a few days later uh, during the Battle of Passchendaele, advancing beside Tynecott Cemetery, and he's now buried in... Uh, in Tynecott Cemetery and I also told the story how when I was in Tasmania Pete I've only been to Tasmania a couple of times with my beautiful fiance Jess and I was um, in the town of Ross I think it is which is a gorgeous town and um, the whole time I'd been in Tasmania I knew that Lewis McGee had come from Tasmania somewhere and had earned the VC and when I was in the town of Ross there was a memorial tomb in the middle of town that's where he enlisted from and I, I literally stumbled across it right in the middle of this beautiful little town so uh, again just another again sergeants we know that sergeants are on the army and just these these countless tales of sergeants doing incredible things. And Lewis McGee, another great example. But um, just, again, that farm, you would walk past it a dozen times as you went to and from Tynecott Cemetery and never notice. Um, but it's such an important part of the entire story. And this is a field as well, particularly when you walk the field the way we're doing it. I mean, when you walk up the road through this field, again, you just get this incredible perspective and you can just stand there and maybe scrunch up your eyes a little bit and imagine the scene in front of you of shell holes and barbed wire and you can picture it. You can picture the the bullets scything down across that ground. And, of course, the bullets are coming pretty much at ground level. They're not... Uh, they're not. If you were standing up, you would have, wouldn't have lasted 10 seconds here. Um, but this is another great place where you can get a... You can start to get a little bit of an impression of what it was like. And I say to people whenever we go to Tynecott, that field is just so heavily sown with Australian dead it's uh, it's it's just a remarkable uh, uh, again a, a nondescript field but uh, but a, an iconic
3: site on the battlefields just realised, I've never mentioned, I don't think this weapon in any of the podcasts, and I was just thinking about it as these guys are about to stand up and advance how on earth do you advance? Well they've got hand grenades, they've got their Lewis guns and they've got their rifles but some things we don't very often talk about is they've got rifle grenades and these are grenades that you fire from your rifle, so they've got a a further reach than the old hand thrown grenades, Uh, and so a lot of the men here were carrying rifle grenades so it meant that they could shower the the German positions before they did that final charge with uh, with rifle grenades and I don't think I've mentioned rifle grenades at all in fact I can feel a podcast coming on on rifle <laughs> grenades <laughs> I think we, we have touched on them as yeah. part of the whole discussion of
0: pillbox attacking but yeah. we've, never, um, we've never really dug very deep on them no, no. Um, quite a fascinating weapon, you're right. All sides had them. You, you yeah. find bits and pieces of them in museums. and yeah. um, Tell us a little bit more about the rifle grenade, Pete.
3: Well, the, there were basically two uh, types that uh, that the British were using, and uh, I, I know that I have colleagues who, who, will, who will know exactly the numbering of these, and I have no idea uh, off the top of my head, and I wish I hadn't mentioned the subject now. Uh, but one of them is on a rod, and the rod goes down the barrel, uh, effectively, and then you fire a blank cartridge and... At the end of the rod is a explosive warhead, uh, which is detonated on impact, uh, and so that can be fired that way. So it's a rod uh, uh, that comes out the barrel. The other one is called a cup discharger, and that clips onto the end of your rifle, and then a Mills bomb goes into the uh, standard Mills bomb. It's a little different, little different. That goes into the cup discharger. It's also got a little rod on it, but much shorter, and that then is, is fired. So it's uh, a Mills bomb uh, is fired off the end of your rifle. So there's two two types as to which one they were using at this point. I suspect it was the cup discharger, but I'm sure I'll be proven wrong by somebody. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, they were, they were uh, very successful actually and uh, a very important uh, piece of kit. The thing I've always been concerned about is that firing... A weapon where there's a rod down your rifle barrel doesn't do your rifle much much good if you're going to use it for actual shooting and aiming at people. So I often wondered, did did these guys carry two rifles, one that they just use for uh, discharging their rifle grenades, or did they use their standard service rifle? And I I don't honestly know. I suspect they used their standard service rifle. I think. No, the answer is the the rifles for rifle grenades were specifically.
0: It was like carrying a mortar. They ah, were specific yeah. rifles Thank that you, would man. be used um, because they required extra reinforcing as well. Yeah, I've seen banding um, going the around pressures. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So the the as I understand it, they were designated specifically as rifle grenade devices and would be carried separately. Um, and the old rifle grenade, I don't. Know, I assume it could have been used if he needed to as a rifle, but I, I don't think they did. Um, but yeah, the banding around them, and also the thing is as well, they were not in any way the the recoil of these. Meant that they were not fired in any way no, from, <laughs> from the, you know, from on, the shoulder. They were they were fired <laughs> on the ground like a mortar, so yeah. similar yeah. to the um, the the misnamed uh, Japanese knee mortar of the Second World War. <laughs> The, a small mortar that was captured by the by the Japanese force and known as the knee mortar. Um, once again, any soldier who was foolish enough to put his knee under the thing when it fired would find himself with a broken leg. So a lot of pressures involved here. But yeah, fascinating weapon. And when you go to Latomi Cafe in Poziere, that's probably the best place to see them in, in Dominic's recreated trench. He's got a lot, of, um, a lot of rifle grenades there, particularly the German ones. The German ones with a very long rod. So just, yeah, a really important part. The combination of rifle grenades and Lewis guns was the formula to overcome to overcome a pillbox and the Australians did it very very well um, we're getting close to the end now Pete we're, we're approaching Tynecott Cemetery when you do this walk absolutely go and spend some time in Tynecott Cemetery this is a wonderful way what I would say to people is if you have extra time and if you're if you're enjoying strolling the battlefields rather than driving from site to site, this is the way you should approach Tynecott Cemetery because then you come in the front entrance, you have a perspective on why the cemetery is there. The pillboxes at the front now make sense because you've been approaching them towards the field and can get a picture of what it must have been like to come under fire. And then you can visit all the men, many of whom who were killed in this attack, who are now buried in that cemetery. So we won't go into detail because you can look up the, the podcast we did on Tynecott, Tynecott Cemetery uh, a couple of months ago. And hear all about it, but it's just been a wonderful way to approach the cemetery, Pete, and get a perspective on this really important and often overlooked Battle of Brunseed Ridge.
3: It is, and I'll just reiterate something that people sometimes feel quite worried about doing is the Cross of Sacrifice in the centre of Tynecott Cemetery is designed for you to walk up the steps onto it and sit on just below the cross and look out across the battlefields. Now, some people feel that that's uh, a no-no, you shouldn't do that, but it was designed to do that for the very reason you can sit there and you can look uh, 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 literally at our walk. You can follow where we've walked right the way back uh, to Docky Farm. It's where
0: actually... Some people think it's insensitive and it's being disrespectful to do that, to climb up on the cross of sacrifice. But we are actually honouring the memory of the men, that the people that created the cemetery, the men that died here. Because the reason they did this was so you could come up there and you could sit there and you could spend a moment just contemplating across the sea of graves and across the battlefield where these men died. They wanted you to do it. So don't feel in any way... <clears throat> squeamish about climbing up on that cross of sacrifice and and, and just sitting there and just contemplating the the, the view in front of you because it's an important view and a lot of men died and are now buried at your feet in that cemetery. So very well said, Pete. It's an important part of the experience, mate. It's been a great walk. Thank you. It's one that I really enjoy doing. It's not a well known walk. It's not one that most people would do. But if you well, next time you find yourself on the battlefields, I would encourage you to take the, the opportunity to do it because it's it's an absolutely extraordinary perspective on a really important battle and um, just a wonderful corner of the battlefields. Pete, thank you, like always, for, for sharing this with us.
3: No, it's a pleasure, and it's nice to do a successful action. Even though there were heavy casualties, I just must reiterate, this is a successful action, and it's the one before we get the nightmare of Passchendaele. So it's the last of the successes of that third deep, that overall big campaign, third deep. Well, thank you, Pete, and we'll talk to you again next week. Yep, look forward to it.
1: Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special
0: offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.